sada je na redu upravo ono zbog čega smo danas svi u kultnoj laubi. Slijedi predavanje Technology and Humanity – The Next 10 Years futurologa Gerda Leonharta. Pozivam vas da velikim pljeskom pozdravite gospodina Leonharta. Right. Dobro jutro. So I feel like I'm on the Titanic with this music playing. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. I'm a futurist, Gerd Leonhardt. What is a futurist? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I became a futurist by accident, really. Um, I used to be a musician and producer. I was in the music business, and then I did a bunch of startups in digital music, and I wrote a book called The Future of Music which some of you may know, it's about 10 years old, and, and then people started calling me and saying, you're a futurist. I said, that's pretty good, I never heard of a futurist, but it sounds like we'll make money. No, just kidding. It sounds like it will work, right? So here I am. So I've done about 1,700 speaking engagements in the last 14 years. And one topic that keeps coming up in the last few years is that People are looking at the world and saying, wow, what's going to happen to humans? What's going to happen to humans where the world is a giant machine? So a machine that makes our news, called Facebook, a machine that does our dating, I'm not going to tell you which one that is, a machine that does our music, very soon a machine that will do us, you know, genome editing, human programming. So as we talk about the future, a lot of people are thinking this. The future is not going to be good. Because lots of reasons why it's not going to be good, right? I'm not going to talk about politics now. But climate change, global warming. And of course, you know, the machines will take our work, and then they will kill us. That's what Hollywood tells us. But I think it really is a strange view of the future because, as I like to say, the future is better than we think. And I feel the energy here in Croatia and also in Eastern Europe in general, much more so than in Germany or so, yeah, that I think the future will be awesome. Because all the things that we're going to achieve, a shift to renewable energy, free music or cheap music we already have, Uh, autonomous cars, smart cities. There's only one thing that we have to do. We cannot get too caught up with how great technology is. Because technology is a tool. If you're a carpenter, you're building a house, you have a hammer and some tools, right? you, you don't sit down and pray to the hammer. You, know? you don't look at the hammer at the purpose of your life. It's the house you're building, not the hammer. Right? So we use technology as a tool, not as a purpose. Right? Uh, when technology becomes the purpose of our lives, that'll be the final station. Right? It's like the whole idea of connecting to the network. And you know, this is a tool. Right? What we really are designed to do as people is to connect to each other. 
That's one thing we shouldn't forget. Right? That's the whole idea of technology. So in this world, as I'm sure you're aware, connectivity is a religion. This is today's religion. This is, this is what we pray to. And I'm guilty. I, I, I do this a lot. But I do wonder how sustainable is this? You know, there's uh, a lot of people that's been research on this in the US. If you ask kids, who's your best friend? 40% of kids have replied, it's my mobile phone. That's a strange thing, right? And then, of course, you know, the future holds that we're going to have artificial intelligence, you know, smart machines telling us what to do. Here's your date, here's your next investment, here's your next song, here's how you, who you're going to vote for. If you don't want to vote, I'll vote for you. That's a good idea. I mean, if I use Google Maps, I forget to learn the city. That's not so good, but I can live with that. But should I pick, should I have the AI pick my wife or my husband based on DNA? Right. Sounds like science fiction. People are working on that. And is this idea of constant, you know, is that a good idea? You know, when you watch, uh, when you travel on the airplane, which I do pretty much every four hours, uh, uh, when you watch people on the airplane with their kids, and they have three or four-year-old kids, uh, and they're constantly playing on the iPad for three hours, right? I mean, the attention span gets reduced to three and a half seconds, right? And you put the kid on the beach, the kid says, what is this boring, you know, there's no iPad. Yeah. I'm not so sure that's a great idea. <laughs> so, on the other side, humanity will change more in the next 20 years than the previous 300 years. Previous 300 years, the steam engine, the internet, the nuclear bomb, right? telephone, television, all very big inventions. But now we're going to change ourselves. I mean, if we use the mobile phone, we already have a second brain, right? That's our second brain. When we use augmented reality, we can change what we see. Kind of like a drug, you know? When we use virtual reality, we can get in a different world. Right? Should try out Microsoft HoloLens, you know, we're in a different world. And then we're going to connect with the brain-computer interface. I mean, technology is changing who we are, that, that's new, or who we can be, right? In fact, some people are saying we can become superhuman, like God. Who does not want to be superhuman? I mean, anybody here in this room does not want to be superhuman? I mean, it sounds like a good thing, right? Like permanent crack, you know, constantly geared up. So. As I like to say, science fiction is becoming science fact. And if you're a scientist, I apologize. You know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. But this is really what's happening. It's like the last two or three years, it's an explosion of stuff that we know from Star Trek right, or other movies. This car, it's uh, in Palo Alto called Waymo. Right? This car actually drives by itself, right? So you sit in the back, not the front. And it completely dries by itself. Of course, in, in Palo Alto, California, this would be very easy to do, right? Because there's nobody there. I, always, you know, 
I think a five-year-old could drive there. But still, right, this is not a Tesla. This is a completely autonomous car. Right? So this is what's happening robots, right? Remember five years ago, you could not get a robot to open a door. Right? Now we have robots like this one from Boston Dynamics. I mean, the next scene is the, the interesting one, right? An 800 kilo robot, right? look what he's doing. Right? 800 kilos. You don't want to meet a robot like this on the battlefield, right? You're in deep trouble. Hey, Google, navigate to work. Okay, work, here we go. Hey, Google, what's on my agenda for today? Today at 10 a.m., client meeting. At 1 p.m., lunch with Tracy. And 6 p.m. Because the next thing is going to happen, we're going to say, hey, Google, I need to get married. Right? And you know, Google will make it happen right in the car. But it gets even better or worse if you look at this. IBM has a machine called the IBM Debater. You know, IBM is very active in this turf. IBM Watson, artificial intelligence that can speak like a human and have a debate with a person. I would like to offer a different view. It's one small step for machine, one giant leap for machine kind. IBM's newest artificial intelligence system took on experienced human debaters and won a live debate. Subsidizing space exploration is like investing in really good tires. It may not be fun to spend the extra money, but ultimately you know both you and everyone else on the road will be better off. Called Project Debater, this... If a machine can debate with you, right, what's going to happen to call centers? Right? You know, 22 million people work in call centers. I think there's a few in Croatia as well. Do we need a call center when, we, when the machine can talk and listen and think, allegedly? Right? Well, obviously not. I mean, from 22 million people that work in call centers, we have 500,000 left in five years. And that's, you know, that's, that's probably an improvement on the call center. But, you know, a job is a job. So what do we do then? And in the medical arena now, we're getting to the point where we're, we're starting to see machines that can scan our health and, and check our biomes and go into our bloodstream and go into the cloud with the information. People are estimating we can save 2 million lives a month by connecting our healthcare information. And I think that would be a great idea, except I want somebody to be responsible. It's such a tiny thing that we have to work on. I mean, imagine if this happens, you know, that the Apple Watch is the, is the first thing. All of a sudden, we find out this watch isn't a watch, right? It is a medical device. I mean, think about how quickly Apple has changed the game by, you know, Apple is selling more watches than all of the Swiss companies combined, you know, where I live in Switzerland, not good for us. But this now is a medical device. It's a monitoring device. So very quickly switched, you know, to see how the industries are converging. So I want to introduce you to six game changers, uh, both for, for business and for society, but also, of course, for your own work. First, everything is becoming data. We're connecting everything. Everything is going to the cloud, smart cities, the Internet of Things. Everything is becoming intelligent, smart, everything. Right? And the next step, we're going to be able to compute everything with quantum computers. You know, machines that had the capacity a million times of today's machines. 
And some scientists are saying that's not possible, you know, quantum physics. But IBM, Microsoft, and 50 other firms are working on what's called supercomputing or 3D computing. So today, you know, if you work in a medical field, you want to have a DNA scan of every person in Croatia, it's a thousand euros each. In the future, it's like two euros each and 14 seconds you know, using machines like this. And what do we do with the DNA when, when we have the DNA? We can see what causes cancer or diabetes. And then we can maybe change that. Yeah, that's another story. But this is what's going on behind all business today. Data, intelligence, cloud, smart computing, and finally, of course, the latest one is the blockchain. I'm not going to talk about the blockchain. I think there's a talk later. Also, usually, when I talk about the blockchain, the eyes glaze over after four seconds. You know, people are like, oh, God, God, that's terrible stuff. But anyway, so this is what we have to understand. And this is what McKinsey says, a $15 trillion economy. This is the biggest gold mine ever discovered, really. And I would just say that I think 90% of that is pretty amazing. Right? We can save energy. We can finally do free banking, almost free music, free films, very cheap, efficient, fast. But then there are other side consequences, like privacy, data protection. So the real challenge here really is this. Eh? Our future is going to be exponential, you know, going 1, 2, 4, 8, 16. It's going to be combinatorial, combining all of those things of technology like in a Rubik's Cube, you know? Imagine you have a Rubik's Cube and you spin it and there's hundreds of different variations, but it's, it's all interacting. I mean, today there wouldn't be an Airbnb without exponential technology. Airbnb doesn't own anything. They don't build anything. They don't pay any taxes. I'm just kidding. Maybe they will. But they bring stuff together, right? The phone, social media, database, availability, sensor networks, boom. And they're adding 60,000 places a week. So that's what's happening in, uh, in exponential terms. Now, here's the first important part. Right? The consequence is that the future is not an extension of the present. But however successful you are or have been, the future is extremely likely to be completely different. I did a seminar for dentists the other day. You know, nice people. <laughs> I hate dentists, but I mean, they were nice people. But So the dentists, you know, are looking at this and saying, well, now there's a robot in Japan that can make an implant, a robot. I mean, now we're going into a world where you have to question what your future is because technology is going to learn anything. I mean, if you're in the car business today, like Audi, BMW, Mercedes, you're not going to just sell cars in the future. You sell mobility. That's car sharing, autonomous cars, electric cars, flying cars. So what does that make Mercedes-Benz? Take a guess. A tech company. Like pretty much any company. In 10 years, we're not going to take a pill to change my cholesterol 
because technology will help me change my cholesterol from the very beginning of the first sign of when I find out I have it. That's 500 million people taking pills, gone. I mean, you shouldn't take that pill anyway, that's a different story. But So what's really important for us, that's why we're here, is future readiness. Are you ready for the future? The number one criteria that people ask for today when you start a job, do you know anything about the future? Do you understand what's coming? And there's a second one, which I'll talk about later, but this is a key question for your company and for yourself. If you have kids, you got to get on this, right? I mean, our kids are going to live in a world that is indescribably different. 20 years, I'm going to get to see this, right, myself. The unlimited power of technology. Unlimited, truly. So what do we do then? I mean, it sounds very exciting, and it can be exciting, but, you know. So what's going to happen with intelligent machines. So first, I propose we get rid of the word, of the word intelligence. Right? Machines are not intelligent. They're as dumb as a toaster. Right? We are intelligent, because intelligence involves, scientists say, between eight and 12 different attributes. Emotional, social, kinesthetic, musical, none of which machines really have. They have one big advantage, right? Unlimited computing. Now, if a machine, IBM Watson, for example, reads all of the books of philosophy, you know, I used to be a student of philosophy a long time ago before I got into tech, but you read all those books, and IBM Watson can read them in 51 seconds, all of the books of, of philosophy, right? Does that make the machine a philosopher? How you would say, that's ridiculous, right? It's, I mean, you could probably quote from all of the pages, but it would not understand a single thing about philosophy. Because it doesn't exist. Right? It, doesn't, it can compute information. Right? I mean, if all we did to, is to compute information, it would be a pretty lame existence. Right? But let's talk about what machines are actually up to. First. We're going in technology, we're going from machines that used to be programmed to machines that can actually learn themselves. Right? Deep learning, machine learning, neural networks. Right? IBM calls it cognitive systems. This is a huge difference. So what it means is you don't sit down and tell the machine what to do, like running a spreadsheet. You tell the machine to look at all of the data, and then you say your mission is to save energy. Los Angeles put all of the traffic lights online, connected the traffic lights, and told the machine, look at the traffic, figure out how to optimize the traffic, we can reduce pollution. And now the system runs Los Angeles traffic. Humans have no chance of understanding it in real time. Demis Hassabi, the CEO of DeepMind, says a very important definition of artificial intelligence. Computer systems that turn information and data into knowledge. This is a whole different world now, right? I mean, talking about knowledge, we thought we had knowledge, right? I mean, if you've been in business for a while, you think, oh, I'm an expert, right? I have knowledge. I understand things. I have skills. Well, it turns out, in the next 10 years, computers will have knowledge. 
they will understand stuff. Because they can see, they can hear, they can watch us, they can speak like us, they can think, you know, compute. What do they not understand? Well, that's the good part, right? 95% of what we do would be very difficult for a computer to understand. Why do you tell a lie? Why do you not say something even though you should say something? Why do you communicate without actually saying something? I mean, those are the things that we do all the time. It's completely normal. Moravec says, a famous scientist from Hungary, says that it's very hard for a computer to do what humans do very easily and the other way around. So we have to keep that in mind when we talk about technology. But this is what's happening. You may have heard 19, uh, was it 2011, uh, Mark Andreessen, one of the big investors of Twitter, Facebook, Netscape originally, coined a term, software is eating the world. Right? Everything becomes software. And it's so true, but you know what's happening now? Software has eaten the world. Right? Dropbox, Salesforce. Now, artificial intelligence is eating software. The end of code, some people say. I think in five years, roughly, we'll be at the point where you tell a computer to build an app for you. And it will, I mean, your job as a programmer will be toast. You can already do that, just not you know, expensive and clumsy. But So artificial intelligence, we will tell the AI, for example, you know, we need to figure out the garbage problem. You know. And you look at all the data feeds and suggest and sends out the drones and the robots. Right? Look at these numbers. This is the estimated forecast, the GDP gain from artificial intelligence. About roughly, I would say, what, $14 trillion GDP gain. Now I ask you, who would not want to be part of this gold rush? China, US, Europe. GDP is good, right? Now, this is where we're going to hit the limits, right? If we just use artificial intelligence to gain more GDP, it could be extremely dangerous. All right, we have to find a balance of how we're going to actually deploy it and who is in charge and, you know, who runs the place because, you know, this is the bottom line, what happens today. I'm sure you're familiar with this. These are the companies that rule the world. And guess where they're from? That's not you. Right? U.S. and China. And these companies, if you look at the rating here, the top four companies on this rating from Mary Meeker, the top four companies have more money than the GDP of France. I mean, they could buy France, you know, on a good day, I suppose. Right? But I mean, look, look at this. And they've tripled in power the last four years. If you had invested in any of these companies, you'd make the biggest return. So that's our world is run by technology. The masters of the world are not the oil companies or the gas companies, the military or the banks. They're the data companies. And the telecoms are following somewhere in that mix, but they're on a slightly different trajectory. But it's interesting to see that, you know, the, now we have to think about one very simple thing. If these companies are so powerful that they can buy France tomorrow, if they can do all these things and 
and become essentially the largest players in the world. I mean, Facebook is the biggest country in the world. 2.5 billion citizens at one cool president. Right? That's crazy. Should we not have some rules for these guys? I mean, if we, imagine we hadn't had rules for banks, which already was too late, but we did have rules for banks. In all companies, where would we be today? I mean, we have to think about it. I think the European Commission is working very hard on this. Because here's the key question. In our future here in Croatia and in Europe, right, who is mission control for humanity? Who says what is right and what's wrong? And how would we know? The GDPR, the European Copyright Directive, is one of those examples. We used to say, well, if you don't opt out, you're in. Turns out that's actually not good. And now we have to opt in, otherwise we're out. That's also a problem <laughs> because it's so hard to reach people. So who decides all of this? Do you in Croatia get to decide what happens with your data when you use Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube? You do not. Who is mission control for humanity today? Silicon Valley and China. And that is not because they're bad, they're actually nice guys, most of them. It's just because they're the fastest. Whoever has the biggest computer wins. It's like guns, you know, same thing. But we need to make sure that we in Europe are getting a piece of this, right? that we have a say about what we want. Because there's one important difference in Europe. We're humanists. Right? By and large, most of us are saying we should have a collective benefit. We should pay some taxes. We should have a human society. Is that really true for other countries, the US, China? No. So then we have to think about that. That brings me to digital ethics. We should not take this lightly. This is not like greenwashing or like, you know, CSR or any of those things. I mean, who in this room does not want to be human? Is there anybody in this room who, who says, I would prefer to become a cyborg, you know, a machine, because I can think faster. Or if you ask this question in California, a lot of hands will go up. Because it's stupid to be, you know, we have to transcend our limitations. Live forever. You know, there's about 45 companies in the Bay Area that use in their tagline, ending dying, the end of death, through technology. That would be a great business, I suppose. But we have to ask this question, you know, where are we going with this? I mean, in this world, you know what's happening. In just a very short time, estimated around 2050, computers will beat us hands down in intelligence. And not just in computing, but anything that involves a simulation. They will still not exist, and they still will not be human. But imagine if a machine has an IQ of a million. I mean, you, you're going to tell the machine, you're going to unplug the machine, right? that machine will have run through four trillion combinations of making sure you don't get to unplug. That's like an ant saying to an elephant, please don't step on me. I mean, this is going to be the point that's called the singularity. And this is what we have to think about. Then we have to say, well, it actually is no longer about technical feasibility or money. 
or efficiency, because the only question that remains is why? Why are we doing this? What is the human purpose? If there is no human purpose, fine. If that's your agenda, I'm fine with that. You know, that is just the purpose of, I don't know, <laughs> money, I suppose. That's fine, it's also a good argument to make, but this is the key question. When we think about technology, we should no longer think about how or if or the cost. That's another five years, but why? In 10 years, technology will be virtually unlimited. I mean, literally to the point where you say it's like, it's like a magic machine. I mean, five years ago, we used to write feature reports. And we sold them for like 10,000 euros, you know, to a few people. And the report was on the future of Europe, the future of Switzerland, the future of, you know, whatever. You know what you do today if you want to know what the future is? You ask Twitter or Google Trends, or very soon you ask IBM Watson. And IBM Watson will give you a fantastic speech about the future of Switzerland or Croatia, you know, based on facts and numbers. Not very, like, creative, but it does that. Do you think anybody's going to call the bank in five years and say, I've got 10,000 euros to invest? I mean, that's something you can do on an app. I mean, that's what people already are doing. So the question is, why are we doing this and where is it going? Because here's the challenge, right? Technology does not have ethics. It doesn't care. It is it's binary. Robots, machines, algorithms don't care whether you're in love or you had a bad day or, you know, those are not facts. I mean, machines are binary. And this is the great thing about machines, because the machine, we can say, hey, we've got 1.5 trillion facts about cancer. Now you have to find a pattern. Humans can't do that. But when the machine finds a pattern, then we have to be the judge of says, well, is that actually what we want? And this is also why we, have, we need a good government. You know, that, that, that's an oxymoron, right? A smart government. A smart government to figure out how to put the ethics on top of technology. What should we not do? If telecom companies can automate network maintenance, which is coming, well, it's about five years away, so all the network engineers who are currently fine-tuning stuff, right, they may not have a job because a robot is doing it. Do they pay an automation tax, like Bill Gates is saying? That would not really be capitalism not to mention communism, the reverse. But it's an interesting question, so what do we do with this? I mean, I think we have to spend as much money on making sure that we can do what we want to have as humans as we spend on the tech. That's an important question. It's not something that Bertolt Brecht used to say, dinner first, then morals. Right? Now, we've had a very big dinner already. And we can't afford to continue this because it's basically a very simple equation. Now, ethics is the difference between what you have a right or the power to do and what is the right thing to do. Of course, that is, you know, still a pretty murky definition here. But the best example are our good friends from Facebook. 
They're gunning for democracy now. And it's funny because, you know, Mark isn't a bad guy. Facebook wasn't hacked. They didn't do anything criminal. In fact, the scariest part of Facebook is that the system worked as designed, which is to allow manipulation. That's called advertising. So, fine. But still, I think most of us would agree, that's unethical. I quit Facebook four months ago. It was a tough decision because 70% of my traffic comes from Facebook. And I did advertising campaigns like many of you <laughs> on Facebook. But I'm not going to give my money to an ethical corporation, an unethical corporation. I mean, Facebook is an AI. Right? So it's an interesting story. It, it shows how something can be good, and then when it gets too good, it's really bad. Now, we have to be careful. Using, for example, human resource analytics, I think it's pretty amazing. We can track people and find out how they're doing. But if we're going to use it to just fire people, that's probably not good. If we use Tinder every day to get a date, do we forget how to really date? We could, yeah, we could just get lazy. And some things, you know, we laugh about and say, okay, you know, we, uh, Facebook is data mining us. I mean, this is, this is what Facebook is doing, right? It's like a USB to your head. I mean, data, uh, Facebook has 250 million facts about the average user. Download your stuff from Facebook. You have a good laugh, yeah? or cry. And this is really what they're perfecting, the art of scanning us. I would say, per se, that's not really all so bad, but when you do it extremely, and you have two and a half billion people, you're building a machine. So good luck to Mark for fixing this. But if this is where we're going, what's called the global brain, I know it looks like Skynet, but I don't, it's not Skynet, right? But I would say that can be amazing because, you know, we can, we can save energy, we can be efficient, we can, we can invent all kinds of interesting stuff, amazing. But if we do this, who's responsible? Is it the government, the telecom? The, who? You know, and Facebook and many social media companies remind me of the U.S. gun lobby, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, with the very argument of saying, you know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. And that has to be the most stupid argument you can imagine. Right? Now, you're going to build something, and you're going to say, well, you know, our tech doesn't really have any bad effects. It's the people who do that. So, I mean, bottom line is, if you invent stuff, you're responsible. It doesn't really matter what other business issues you have. So, we don't want to live in a world that's like Black Mirror. You've seen Black Mirror where you could rate everything and you rate it everywhere and doing everything and so on and so on. Right? So this, this is something to be aware of, you know. Consumers love tech, but they don't want tech to dominate. If you run a company, you have to think about this. Tech is fine, but, but when it dominates your relationship, you know, then it's not so fine. So, how do we protect humanity? Sometimes I joke, I say, like in America, you know, I, I lived for 17 years over there. Uh, we used to have the, uh, the Envi uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. You know? Trump got rid of it because, you know, we don't need it. You know? But 
I think we need a humanity protection agency that says there's things about us that we should not give to technology. There's things that we should not do. There's things that we need to have some sort of balance on what technology does. Because if there's no balance right now, it's still very early. You know? In 10 years, if there's no balance, we are technology. So, I mean, we're moving into a world that does this. Everything you do, your banking, your food, your retail, your shopping, your car, your smart home, your music, your news, goes into the cloud. And that is a good thing because it's, it's powerful. But you know, Netflix can tell, I don't know if you have Netflix, you can use Netflix here, but I think you do, right? Uh, Netflix can tell if you're straight or gay from, from your viewing habits on Netflix. Never mind what Facebook can tell. Right? <laughs> or WhatsApp, you know, not even going to talk about WhatsApp. But here's the thing, right? The more we connect, the more we have to spend time and think of what makes us human. Because human beings don't consist, uh, don't exist because we can connect to data. That's ridiculous. We existed a long time before there was any such thing. Why do we exist? Well, relationships, experiences. That's what, that's what matters for us. Right? Data is just something that is added to the equation. So, I think we should make a rule and say all technology that we are inventing, all the cool stuff that we have, has to result in human progress. And there has to be a test. And here's five new rights that I have proposed in my book. The right to remain human only, which means not to use augmented reality, which is coming, right? Virtual reality, mobile phones even. The right to be inefficient, I mean, if we don't have the right to be inefficient, we would be a machine. The right to disconnect. I'm all for the right to disconnect, to be in the Constitution, like in Finland. I think we also need a right to disconnect. We say, you know, I, you're not going to reach me at 10 p.m. You know? I'm not going to do any social media updates today. The right to remain un, unobserved. So that's couple of things I'm proposing. So one of the things I've been talking about for years is what I call the Digital Ethics Council. We don't just need government organizations or international organizations that do digitization, right? Every country has a digital council, right? More work, more jobs, more GDP, great. But do we give a damn about GDP if we can't live as humans? I mean, of course they are related. <laughs> gross national progress indicator and so on. So I really do think we must invest as much in humanity as we do in technology. Education, for example. And think about what that means for where we're going with business. So I'll finish with work and jobs and then we'll do some questions. Unfortunately, the timer isn't working, so I have no idea, but I keep on rambling. So, intelligent machines. Your future team member will be technology. It's happening every day now. If you're a banker, most banks already have robo-advisors. Right? They're, they're systems that give advice as to what you should be doing with the money. And, and that's going to happen in insurance, in government. I mean, go to Estonia, right? the e-government. It's all of this. 
Is that a bad thing? I'm saying, well, it's probably a good thing. As long as we figure out what the border is, you know, what we do, I mean, the changes are going to be fundamental. It is the end of routine. Any routine that you do, the machines will eventually, next 10 years, be able to observe, crack the numbers, and take over your routine. So that goes for driving a car, flying an airplane, making a hamburger, delivering something, financial analysis, as long as it doesn't require ingenuity. If you have kids, do not let your kids learn any routine, because that is basically unemployment guaranteed. But here's the good news. The end of the routine is not the end of work. I mean, if my job is 50% routine, I'm working for a company doing financial analysis or accounting, if the machine can learn my 50% and it can do a great job, the company becomes more efficient, it has more money, we have some new ideas, I can move up the food chain. I'm not a machine. If your job is 100% routine, call center, you're in deep trouble. Because that is the end of your job. And then we have to think about, what do we do with those people? Can you train a taxi driver to become a programmer? Maybe some of them were programmers, I don't know. But this is good news. It's just, I think there's a tough point of where we're saying, okay, what does it mean, where are things going? You know, anything that can be automated, digitized, will be. And lots of people are saying this will make us useless humans. Do you really believe we're going to be useless because some machine is taken over our routine? I mean, even if you're a banker or a lawyer, you know, you have lots of routine. If the machine does it, can you reinvent? Of course you can. Well, it takes a bit of effort, you know. I mean, for example, non-disclosure agreements, if you're a lawyer, right? Contract checking, legal discovery, fact-finding, machine will do it. There's already the first machines that you speak to and you say, find out if this law would apply to the following lawsuit, look at all the history, that's what the paralegal used to do. Right? And the machine will tell you in 12 seconds. Check in 100,000 records. And on the flip side is this, right? It's in this world, anything that could not be digitized, automated, or virtualized becomes worth gold. And this is exactly the opposite. We used to say, you know, who cares if you're emotional? Who cares if you have, I mean, you, know, you just have to be a programmer. You know, produce. And now it's the opposite. Because this is, you know, this will be very difficult for machines to learn. Maybe not impossible. You know, some people are saying, yeah, 50 years. I, I hope that doesn't happen, but, you know, I think for the time being, that is really what we do. Here's something important to remember, I said in the beginning. Machines are amazing at doing this. One kind of intelligence, and they will beat us in a few years, hands down. Do not compete with machines on fact-finding, number crunching, data filing, and routine. It's not going to work. It works now, to some degree, because machines are still pretty stupid. <laughs> But this is what we do, right? And this is the kind of intelligence that we have. Social, intellectual, kinesthetic, emotional. And allegedly, 
women have a lot more emotional intelligence. So some people are saying women are better suited for the future. I'm not going to argue on that one, but it's probably true, you know, it's tough for us, but you know, think about that one. So you've seen the, all the scary movies about artificial intelligence. Forget Hollywood when you're thinking about the future of machines. This is primarily fear-based entertainment. Really what's happening is with machines, first, Minsky says, who invented AI, we are least aware of what our minds do best. In other words, what we do naturally is extremely difficult to tell a machine, because we just do it. And second, as this researcher, Johnny Foridi says, algorithms outperform humans when it is not about human things, understanding, emotions, intentions. So if we stay there, I call this intelligent assistance, IA, we'll be fine. We're going to lose jobs, yes. We have to think about that. But this will not have the world be taken over by robots, right? Because they will not understand any of these things. The bottom line is this. Machines don't do relationships. The embodiment of this statement is the movie Her. You've seen the movie Her? Right? Where the guy falls in love with the operating system. Turns out, in the end, that she had 2,450 other lovers at the same time. You know? well, because, you know, it can, right? And we have to remember this. You know, what's really important for humans is not the math, is not the data, is not the stats, is not the algorithms, is not the tech. Right? It's relationships and engagements. If we forget that in business, I think we'll be in deep trouble, right? because we're going to say, well, the customer is really a machine, a buying machine. And my advertising is a mousetrap, you know, to capture the customer. So our skills need to change. So we've got to think about, I know you have this big debate about education in this country, right? We really have to think about this. These are the new skills according to the World Economic Forum. Complete change from 2015. First position, critical thinking. I mean, look at the red ones here. Critical thinking, creativity, emotional intelligence, cognitive flexibility. If you had said that 10 years ago to an HR manager, you know what they would have said? That's ridiculous. I don't want people like that in my company. Emotions, questions, critique, no way. Right? That's just not going to happen. Those people are troublemakers. Right? I mean, if you are future-focused, future-ready, you are a troublemaker. And this is what companies now want. Right? I mean, not every company. <laughs> We need that because that is what describes progress. You know, this, this is where we're going. We need a world that has a balance of the EQ, the emotional quotient, and the IQ. Because guess what? A high IQ is very helpful. But when a machine has an IQ of a million, you're toast. You're not going to compete on knowledge, on numbers, on stats, on speed. Just today, yes. Tomorrow, no. So having a high IQ is very useful. We need a high EQ, emotional quotient, questions, imagination, all those things that humans are best at. And we have to change our thinking about school. Science, technology, engineering, math, of course. I mean, everybody should know that. But here's the thing. 
will being a scientist or a programmer or an engineer, will that be future-proof when machines have developed an IQ of a million? So I came up in my book with what I call a hecky. Humanity, ethics, creativity, imagination. Why are we cutting back in education on music, on philosophy, on sports, on all the stuff that actually is actually human? It doesn't make any sense. Ideally, if you have kids, they can be a little bit scientific, but they have to be human. A mensch, as they say in German. I think this is our only chance for the future. Because all of these things, I mean, computers will be scientists in the future. There's already a, a, a technology called bio-cloud technology, you know? cloud biology, where pharma companies are inventing stuff in the cloud based on simulations. So anyway, I have to come to the end. We're going to take some questions, so I'm going to summarize real quick of where things are going, how to do the future, because in the end, you know, one thing that's also happening here is that we're changing our entire economic paradigm. That's a 20-year process. And some people called this in the 60s, people, planet, profit. I call it people, planet, prosperity. It's a triple objective. If the only objective we have is prosperity, we're going to use artificial intelligence and genome editing to blow ourselves up. Because, you know, it will make a lot of money doing that. Uh, and that doesn't strike me as a very good idea. So, you know, a new economic logic, the decoupling of work and money. We had a vote in Switzerland on the basic income last year, 26% voted for it. The time will come again where we can discuss those things, right? So I'll, just real quick, how to do the future. Four things, if you want to go into the future, four things you have to do. You have to practice observation. You have to work on your understanding because understanding is human. Machines don't understand, you know? they, they know they have data. To exemplify the, the benefit on this, you know, if you're sitting down for dinner with your kids, your kids tell you about the day and tell you about the grades, that's called information. But you're looking at your 12-year-old son, you're saying, holy shit, he's fallen in love for the first time ever. That's called understanding. But he hasn't told you. Imagination, the crucial skill Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge. You want to build the future, you have to imagine what it is, and then you have to create it. So, bottom line is you need to spend 5% of your time on future readiness. And I'm not talking about 5% extra time. 5% of your current work time. If your boss or your CEO or whoever runs the show does not allow you to think about the future, you will not have a future. And neither will the company. The Google rule used to be 20% spent on useless stuff that has nothing to do with today. I think they reduced it to 10 or so, but you know, it's still so very much the paradigm. So let's not be too op you know, optimistic. 5% will do the job, I think. And as far as your company is concerned, your position on good or bad tech defines your future. Facebook will die if they don't figure out how to go back over here. Is so too much over there? It's a total certainty. So think about that when you're building stuff. You know, are you going to be on the good side, what we call team human? 
or you're going to be on Team Robot. The other thing is, you know, I talk about a lot when I talk about the future is, is it a good thing to be smarter? Well, the answer is, of course, yeah, of course it's good to be smarter. But you know what the future is? I'd rather be more human than to be smarter. Because that's my advantage. Knowing more stuff, yeah, well, that, that's, I, of course, I have to do that, right? Yeah, but do I want to really become a machine? You know, if I'm going to connect my brain to the internet, I become a machine. Not a good deal. And the biggest worry I have today is not that machines will come over and kill us. Not of the explosion of intelligent machine. The biggest worry I have is that we become too much like a machine. Because everything has to be fast and shortcut and we don't take our time and we, you know, we basically do whatever the machine would do. <laughs> that is stupid. I mean, that's not going to take us anywhere. So, in, uh, in psychology, they say this is basically what we're striving for, right? It's called positive psychology, positivity, engagement, relationships. And to which I would say, now it's a strong line in my book, technology is not what we seek, but how we seek. It's a tool. And I love technology, it's a fantastic tool. But I don't seek technology. I think we all you know, seek happiness, which is defined here. So let me summarize, truly summarize now. <laughs> this is our future. We're, we're going to live in a world, why is this not going like it should? Sorry, one more time. So we're going to live in a, in a future where all that stuff that should be done here, all of the funny icons I showed you earlier, data, artificial intelligence, and all these things. And on top of that, we're going to think of a future where we're going to build a system that's balanced, that's human. People, planet, profit. A place to where all that stuff comes together and creates a future that we really like. Final statement for my book is we should embrace technology but not become it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for this inspirational and astounding lecture. Now it's time for Slido and 15 minutes Q&A. Wow, you can keep on Slidoing here. There's not much incentive. So I'm going to provide you with an incentive. I have one free book. Whoever makes the next post gets the free book. Okay. Sorry for you guys, you already posted. So let's, let's pick the first one. Oh, the second one is better, actually. Would I like to be upgraded to be superhuman by AI or another technology? So that's a very good question. I get this quite a, Oh, here we go. There we go. Okay. We'll get to you in a second. Who, where are you? Come out yourself. Do you want to get the free book? Okay, later. Okay, I got it. So would I like to be upgraded? Yes. It's very tempting. Would I like to take drugs to think faster? Would I like to cut my legs off and have new legs so I can hike the mountain? That sounds all like a good idea. It's just a question of the magnitude of it. I have already upgraded myself using a smartphone. And that is a considerable upgrade. But at a certain point I would say, you know what, I would rather downgrade and say that I'm going to spend my time with what I really want. This is not a question of age, by the way. 
It's a question of what you want. And of course, the problem is for us, you know, we can all have our own desires, but you would be utterly useless as a worker if everybody is upgraded. Have you ever tried virtual reality? You know, the idea of having a helmet that you work in, like Minority Report. Imagine if everybody around you is working in virtual reality and their productivity is 100x, 100x. And you say, I don't want it, makes me sick or whatever. You're out. That is something we should not have. So basically, yes, I say upgrading is good. You know, I take my supplements, I use my mobile phone, I, you know, I, I, maybe I'll use IBM Watson to ask questions. But at a certain point, I have to say, you know, there are some things I should not get rid of. Mystery, serendipity, discovery, emotions, inefficiency. If we were to say, for example, that we would just pay our insurance for our car based on the actual use, which lots of companies are suggesting, then you know what that would lead to? Total compliance. I would not speak in the car, that's bad because it records everything. I would not speed up or slow down a lot. I would not drive at two in the morning because they have all the data. And if I do that in all parts of my life, I become a machine. So that's my long-winded answer. But anyway, yes, a little bit, but within reason. Let's go to the, where was the one? I think it was a Hell 9000. That's very clever. That guy deserves two books. So, yes, once AI, or woman, sorry, once AI goes on to exceed human intelligence, is that moment when humans will no longer be the object of ethics. The same way we don't apply them to animals. Yeah, principle, that's correct. This is exactly why I'm saying I, I think we should embrace intelligent assistance you know, on the lowest level. We should be very careful about inventing a machine that is independent, artificially general, in what's called AGI, generally intelligent because I don't think we could control them. And, you know, we're not that close. We're maybe 20 years away from that. So the first wave of disruption will be that we, our jobs are changing. The second wave will be that we have machines that can manipulate everything, and then, you know, that's hard for us to control. So I think we're going to need a moratorium on the top-level artificial intelligence, like nuclear weapons. I mean, you say what you want about, you're always saying, you know, people are always saying, oh, we can't control that, it's stupid, right? But we have controlled bioweapons, we have controlled nuclear weapons, we haven't had a bomb since Hiroshima, but we did have one or two bombs, right? Keep that in mind. If we want to control artificial intelligence and genome editing, we're going to have to collaborate. And I think we will, so we're still at the beginning of this. Another question? How long are we going to live in 20 years? Well, it's completely obvious. The kids of my kids will be an average of 100 years old. But for many reasons, lifestyle, medication, new inventions, nanotechnology. And we are already gaining one third of a year every year that we live. So natural cutoff will be 120 years for genetic reasons. Afterwards, it's, you know, genome programming. But here's the funny part. And I imagine you live in a world like Croatia or Europe 
where our retirement age for men is what, 63, 64? So then you have 50 years on the cruise ship. You know? I mean, amazing, right? Even more cruise ships in Dubrovnik, you know, than, than the ones that are coming now. So that is a huge challenge to our social system. So we need to get older people back to work. To do the work that nobody wants to do, you know, the, the tough work, also the social work, maybe the politics. So, good question. Another one, the skills we, our kids should develop, there's only one skill our kids really need, which is to be a human. Ingenuity, whatever human has, right? imagination, creativity, negotiation, design, artistry, you know, all the things that are very hard to define. You know, I read a book the other day and the author said the only thing that we need to be sure of is that our kids have good character. Good character. So they make a judgment, they can define things, they can figure out where to go. I mean, a machine cannot have a character, <laughs> or never mind even a good character. So I think that's very important. What exactly that means, I mean, I would love the kids to have both a humanistic and a scientific education. But that's, of course, a question of funds. If I had a choice... And we have thank enough you. time for one more question. <laughs> okay, the voice of God. <laughs> no, no, that, that was mission control, right? It was, uh, was Silicon Valley speaking. One more question. Now, should we take a live question or one of those? Yeah? Which one should we take? Um, Okay, let's talk about this one. We talk about computers taking jobs from humans, but it's not happening. We don't have enough humans to jobs all over the world. Yeah, that's true today. Absolutely. So we need more programmers, more scientists, more engineers. True. But that's because machines are still stupid. I mean, we're just now at the point, I mean, IBM Watson is the best example. IBM Watson has a fantastic story about all the AI and the machines. But is it actually working? Yeah. It has good indications. Once we get 5G networks, the Internet of Things, quantum computing, cheap devices, substitute for, for the minerals that we use in the mobile, five to seven years, over. So today, that's right. We're missing jobs in some places. But we have to think a little bit further than that. So it's basically a curve, a window, that's developing. I want to close by saying, uh, by quoting one of my first slides, the future is better than we think. Well, let's not sit here and say the future has all these problems because, you know, what we have achieved is absolutely mind-boggling already. We just have to put it in perspective as to what we want. And that, in my view, is hopefully to stay human. Thanks for listening.